Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 313. And today on the show, it is November Eve, and we are joined by longtime Midwest Whitetail contributor Jared Mills to talk all things November and rut hunting. All right, welcome to another episode of the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today in the show, we are preparing for the whitetail rut. It's the Super Bowl of our season. It's sweet, sweet November. Uh, my juices are flowing, Dan. Are, are yours? Are you feeling this? Yeah, man. Um, it's kind of weird. I have this calm feeling. As opposed to in years past, where I think that's got to be age. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but, I, dude, I, I, I won't, I wouldn't disagree with you. I mean, a lot's changed over the past five to ten years, and the way I approach things. An inner calm. You're kind of yeah. zen. You're kind of zen these days, Mister Johnson. That's what I think's yeah. happening. Yeah. Um. Or it could be like brain damage. <laughs> it could. It's probably brain damage. Lack of sleep, maybe too. <laughs> yeah. Kids. Yeah. Kids. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But uh, but I'm still young and, and youthful and full of vibrancy. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm excited for the rut. <laughs> oh yeah, dude. I'm I'm excited, but in in just a different way. You know what I mean? Just like I know what I have to do, and I got I just have to go out and do it. It's business time. Business. That's it's right. It's just business time. Dan's just gonna go out there. He's gonna do his job. He's gonna execute in the game plan. He's gonna come back and say, "Ah, it's easy." That's how you do it. I'm thinking. Yeah. I'm thinking that's that's your plan, right? <laughs> that's cool. I hope. I hope it's that easy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It oftentimes doesn't seem to go that way. But um, but that's what I want to talk about today, Dan. Um, we're gonna here in a minute. I'm gonna have Jared Mills hop on the line and and chat rut hunting strategy. And Jared is, um, he works for Midwest Whitetail over there with Bill Winky. Um, he's kind of in Iowa your neck boy. of the woods. Yeah. An Iowa boy. Yep. You guys are chasing the same deer probably. Um, he's a, he's an avid whitetail bow hunter. He's got a whole lot of experience himself, but I've always kind of thought that someone 
over there at Midwest Whitetail or in a similar role would have a really interesting opportunity to learn from a wide base of people because, right, there's all these different people filming for them. They're getting all these different intel reports or they're looking at all these different hunts. I got to believe that gives him a wide base of of intelligence and experience to pull from and, and to kind of learn from. I think that's that's a pretty cool thing. So when he hops on here, we're just going to dive into everything he knows about hunting the rut, all of his plans, his experiences, his strategies, what he's going to be doing this year, what he's learned over the course of all these years watching all these other guys doing it, what he's learned from Bill, um, who, who just killed a giant buck himself. Um, so that's the game plan for the main part of the show. But for our pregame, I thought, Dan, that you and I should do a couple things. Number one, we got to catch up just a little bit on what we've been doing out on our own recent hunts. Um, I know you've got to spend some time in the woods. I got back from my Boundary Waters hunt a handful of days ago and have been hunting on the back 40 here recently. Um, and then I want to talk a lot about our rut hunting plans ourselves, what our rutcation strategies are, what we're doing, um, how we're going to get it done. So I, that's that's what I got in store. Do you think that that'll work? That'll work, man. So I, quick question. Yeah. Have you already covered the uh, – because I, I have been MIA on social as far as uh, looking at other people's stuff. Are you going to put out a podcast strictly about the Boundary Waters trip? Yes, we haven't done okay. it yet. We recorded it. We just haven't released it yet. We recorded it right after the trip. Um, but then I realized we had a bunch of story-focused podcasts. And with the rut hitting, I just felt like people need a strategy episode in here too to, to prep yeah. you for that Super Bowl. So yep. there's been a lot of people asking me, wanting to know how the hunt went. They want to hear it. Um, bear with me just a little bit. We're going to hold on to it just a little bit here so that we can get you some tips and tactics to help you with these next couple weeks of hunting. And then we're going to release the Boundary Waters recap and you'll get the full story. Um, I'm also going to start sharing some stuff on social media. Um, so I will share kind of what's going on, but, but Dan, the, the high level overview is that it was a tough hunt, but it was an amazing experience. I mean, we had a blast. We, we got to spend time in some of the most stunning country that I've, that I've been in. I mean, this place is really cool. Um, I cannot recommend it enough as far as a place to go and see and and hunt or fish or camp and paddle. Uh, I mean, it's the real deal. So, so yes, it was a great trip. Um, but now, now back at it in Michigan and trying to get it done here. And it's been, uh, it's been a little bit of a struggle fest here in Michigan since I got back from that trip. I, uh, I guess maybe I'll just fill you in on what I've been doing here since I got back. Well, the uh, so here's what I caught so far is there are some there is a little bit of fresh shine on the back forty but not a lot of movement. Yes, that's a pretty good synopsis of it. Um, I think the last time we chatted about the back forty in detail, it was like leading into the season, right? Um, and I had all these concerns about all the commotion we made in August. I mean, we were in there for several weeks with four, five, six people in and out, in and out doing all sorts of crap. So August was a mess. And then mid-September we came in and we squirrel hunted the whole thing. And I was a little worried about that because it's right in the middle of when I usually like to keep a property untouched. Um, So I had concerns, but ended up 
getting in there, hunting early season, a few days, had a guest out, had a great time with Luke, and we killed the doe. He killed the doe while we sat together, and that was a really cool experience. But still never got eyes on a mature buck except for – actually, I think I mentioned this in one of the intros, but if I didn't, when I walked in – did I tell you this? When I walked in for my very first hunt on the property, I bumped a big buck that was bedded right on the edge of our property. Did I tell you that? Oh, really? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, so hiking in for the first time, I thought I was going around in a safe route, walking on the edge of our old field in a, like a big open stand of timber, not bedding country, like the kind of stuff that there should not be a buck bedded in. And this big wide buck jumps up 20 yards away from me and runs off into the timber. Um, so that was a surprise. It was this wide eight-pointer that we've been getting some pictures of now. Um, so bad news that we bumped him. Good news is that, okay, there's a mature buck out here. So that was nice. Um, since that point, hunted a few more times, still haven't seen a mature buck, um, but have gotten pictures of three deer, two deer that are definitely four or older and one deer that's maybe three, maybe four, um, big body deer. One's yeah. that wide eight. He's an old deer. You can just tell he's got a tank of a body on him. Um, not a huge, you know, set of antlers on him, but a cool wide buck. The second one's a tall and tight eight-pointer. He's another cool one, big body. And then this is for you, Dan. There's another funky buck. He's a funky nine-pointer. One side's like a small <laughs> – one's got a small five-point side. Then the other's like a big four-point side. So I'm looking at this deer, and I was going to call him the lopsided nine. And then I started thinking, I got a weird nine-pointer. I know a weird nine-fingered guy. <laughs> I think it's time to finally name a buck after you. Oh, man, I really appreciate it. Th- he's a three-year-old, right? He's a three- or four-year-old. Three- or four-year-old, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think on on Instagram, you were asking people what you thought that the age of that deer uh, was, right? Whether he was three or four? Uh, well, that, there's a different one that I was asking about that. Okay. But this was one I was asking for name ideas on. Gotcha. Well, the the number first off i'm flattered i really appreciate it you know <laughs> giving me some weak nine pointer and i gave you like a boone and crockett dude this is uh, michigan this is about as good as we oh, get that's right that's right i forgot i forgot for a second but that <laughs> he's a cool buck i know he, he is pretty funky but i'll tell you what that other um p- uh, buck that you took a picture of and posted the age question it, one the age question yes. if you put your thumb over that deer's back half his like back legs I would say four-year-old. You put your thumb over his front shoulders, I would say three-year-old. It's crazy. that like his. It's almost like his body doesn't belong together. He's a funky one. Yeah. I, I, he's a cool buck. Um, he's a really nice Michigan deer. And that's uh, that one I don't know what I'm going to do because in the summer I was seeing him you know, out in the bean fields, and I was like, oh, he's probably a three-year-old. And then I started looking at the fall pictures of him, and – couple of the pictures, he looks like he's got a tank of a body. I'm like, geez, that doesn't look like a three-year-old to me, so I don't know. Um, that's on the same – that's not on the back 40. That one's on the same property where Tran is. So okay. I'm unsure about what to do with him. Um, if I see him in person, if he looks like a tank, I might have a hard time passing on him. But uh, but Tran's really the one I want there. So it'll be yeah. it'll be a game-time decision. But, uh, but yeah. your phone. Yeah, yeah, I know. On the back 40, though, it's the – it's Dan – it's the wide eight and the tall eight, and nice. we still haven't seen them. We got some pictures. Um, we hunted this past weekend. Uh, Doug Duran, I don't know if you know Doug, but Doug's uh, 
a friend of Steve's, Steve Ranella's. We went out and hunted uh, caribou together in Alaska. Yep. He's, he does some really cool things in Wisconsin. He does some consulting and land management work. And so he came out to the back 40 to take a look, see what, you know, see what we're doing, share some thoughts and some ideas for what we can do moving forward. So it was a great visit, but tough hunting, man. I mean, we saw, he saw one deer the whole weekend. Yeah. And I saw one year and a half old buck and a button buck. And that was yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, it was brutal. It was frustrating. I couldn't believe it. I mean, this. And it rained too, right? A lot. Yeah. There was the middle day of the hunt was basically a monsoon. Yeah. So that was a bummer. But I know, I know they're in the area. Like I know there's good bucks in the area. Interestingly, one of the neighbors texted me a picture of a really big buck, a nice buck that just got killed off the road. Like someone hit it with a car. Oh, and boy. I looked at this picture. I'm like, holy smokes, that's a giant. He's got these really unique brow tines that kick out to the outside. And yep. then that, that flipped a switch in my mind. One night in the summer, I snuck out on this property, and uh, there's a bean field on our neighbors. So I could sit on my property and watch the bean field on the neighbors. And right as I walked up to the edge of the field, a bachelor group of bucks were going, a bachelor group of bucks were going over the hillside. And I pulled up the camera and just caught. A sh- like a several second glimpse of this buck going over the hill and it was that deer. I went and watched that video clip again and it was that buck that just got killed by a car. So that's a bummer. One of the local big mature bucks got smoked and he was bigger than I realized. Um, so I know they're around. Just hasn't worked out in the farm yet, but we're going to start yeah. back again in November. I'll be back out there again and uh, I got to believe something will come through at that point. So, so that's what's going on in the back 40. And then nocturnal, are they still nocturnal? Mostly, mostly there's been a few edge of daylight pictures by the wide eight pointer. Um, actually some, some movement early in the month. Um, but recently that wide eight has been coming into bed. It looks like past one of my cameras just at daylight or just before it. So I think he's bedding in that area I've been talking about called the honey hole. Um, this really cool zone on a ridge system with a bunch of cedars and native prairie grasses. Um, so I think he's in there a decent amount of time. So when I get back out there in a handful of days, um, I'm going to hit that area hard. So I'm excited to, excited to see what goes on there. But then on the other spots, you know, on the, on the main Michigan property trans there, I hunted once for him, took a stab after him after the boundary waters hunt, um, been getting some more pictures of him on the edges of daylight, not quite moving in daylight. Uh, so took a stab, pushed in, deeper into the property, closer where I think he beds and hung, did a hanging hunt. Didn't see much at all. Um, but starting tonight, I'm going to get back after him. I've got the next five, six days to, uh, to hunt that property. So I'm excited to, excited to start the cat and mouse with him now in earnest. Um, yeah. so to super high level, that's, that's kind of what's been going on here. Boundary waters, a little bit of time in the back 40. Now I'm going to be hunting the other farm for a few days. Um, uh, we can talk, I, I can how share. How are you going to manage this? I mean, how are you going to manage your, your time between your home farm and the, the properties that you have closer to where you live and then the back 40? So it's kind of, it, it's, it's kind of just locked in stone with the camera crew schedule. Uh, so basically we had to schedule when the camera crew can come out and film stuff on the back 40 and you know, we're having different guests come out now for some hunts on the property too. So that's just kind of scheduled. So, you know, those, when those dates come, I have to go and I have to hunt the back 40 on those dates. And when they're not here, then I can hunt my other spots. 
Um, in a perfect world, I wish that, you know, we had a camera crew that was here that could just, you know, when the conditions are right or when Intel tells me I should be hunting the back 40, I could just go and do it. And then when the conditions are right in my other spots, I could go hunt those spots. Um, that's just not the case. So I'm kind of stuck hunting at certain times based off of the schedule, which is, it's, you know, it is what it is. So you can't, you're not going to hunt without a camera guy this year, or you're going to have a camera guy the whole time on the back 40 on the back 40. Okay. So, so anything on the back 40 is filmed for that show. All the other stuff is just me doing my own thing. Um, so, so that's the case. So I've got, you know, five or six days now on my own where I can hunt my regular spots and then the camera crew comes back and then we've got like a seven day period or something like that. That's all back 40. And then I'll have another six days to hunt on my other spots on my own before gun season. So I've got two, five or six day windows to try to kill Tran on my own. Um, and then that big back 40 chunk in the middle. Gotcha. So we'll see. I gotcha. mean, I, I, I wish I had the flexibility to be able to hit it when you need to, you know, you know how that is. Some days you want to yeah. be here. Some days you want to be there. Some days the wind are right for this zone. Some days the wind's right for the other. Um, that would be like the best way to hunt this. Um, but that's just kind of part of it. It's a new thing. It's, it's a cool opportunity to be able to share that hunt. And so I, I try to focus on the positive and not the potentially negative, but I'd be lying if I didn't tell you, I stress about, you know, how the hunt's going to go. And the fact that we haven't seen a single decent buck while hunting yet on the farm. Um, I know they're there, they're around. It's just hard to have, you know, four guys walking in and out of a place like this and, camera crew is walking around and that's just a whole new thing for me that adds a interesting wrench in the, in the system, you know? Well, I mean, that's out of your control, right? So yeah. why stress about it? If yeah. It's out of your control. It is what it is. And it, it, it's, and it's, it's nothing I can complain about because it's a cool thing. Like it's yeah. awesome to be able to share that story, but you know me, I'm always going to be stressing about trying to make these hunts work out. I want it to, ha I want to have a great hunt. I want to see some mature deer. I want, you know, like we all do. I want to have a big buck on the ground, right? <laughs> right. So, right. so I'm, I'm inevitably going to worry a little, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to channel my inner Dan Johnson, trying to channel that old man Zen and just, <laughs> just let old it roll, <laughs> let it roll. So, so that's at a high level what I've got going on. Um, we can talk a little bit more tactic maybe later, but what about you? You've got your rutcation coming up soon. You just finished a nice long weekend of hunting. What is happening in Iowa right now? Yeah, man. Uh, so I just got off of a Friday, Saturday morning, Saturday night, Friday or Sunday morning hunt. And, uh, basically I wanted to get out there and get into a couple real tight spots, make sure there was a tree stand in there. So I went in, hung a stand and then I'll just let it sit there for the rest of the rut. Right. Uh, I put, Let's see. I hunted Friday night close to home. Uh, I, all I wanted to do was shoot a doe and I ended up, ended up stumbling upon this rub line that I could see nine different rubs from my tree stand. And they were, they weren't small. They, they weren't Jeez. these little like finger size rubs. They were like the size of my calf. And I'm just like, Jesus, what like, I'm glad I know about this spot now. So I could probably come back here and check it out. You know, if, if things aren't going right on my, on my main farm, but really all I wanted to do was kill a doe this weekend. And obviously that didn't happen easier said than done, but I just wanted to basically prepare myself for the next, however many weeks, 
right? So I went in, set up a couple uh, tree stands, uh, set up a couple trail cameras, moved some trail cameras around, checked some trail cameras, and uh, just wanted to go into the next week uh, prepared and with a little bit more intel uh, so that I could, uh, you know, just try to get it done again. So let's talk about uh, the plan moving forward. You, you mentioned yeah. checking those trail cameras. We we just texted a little bit about some intel you've gotten. Um, can we talk about your game plan and what the trail cameras are telling you? Yeah, man. So right now I got two pictures uh, other than one like two or three weeks ago, right? The, the daylight one I sent you, that was from like three weeks ago, right? So yeah. that intel is great to have for next year but doesn't really mean much this year. Um, both bucks are still nocturnal right now. Uh, the, the two of the two of the three that I have on the hit list are here. They're on the farm, uh, which is good. Right. But they're nocturnal. Uh, and, 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 and let's really quickly recap. These yeah. three bucks are which three, uh, gnarly, Charlie, Spencer, new hearth and dork. Dork is the one who, He's like I don't expect 17 years old, right? He's, he's not, been, he'll be not, he's nine this year, dude. He's been as long as this podcast has been on the air. We've been talking know, about right? dork. <laughs> that is crazy. crazy. Yeah, I know. Um, I don't, I don't know where he lives straight up. I mean, I could just, there's only two trail cameras that he has shown up on the entire time I've known him. Uh, and then when the season hits, he relocates. So if I see him, it will be awesome. If I don't, uh, you know, whatever the legend Not, lives on, the legend lives on. Right. Uh, but gnarly Charlie and Spencer Newharth are close to the same areas that they were, or they're in the same zone, I guess that they were, uh, last year. So, um, just, it, it just be patient. I guess, you know, make sure that the, when I'm checking my trail cameras, I'm looking for daylight. Uh, and when I go to check the trail cameras, I'm looking for good access. Most of the trail cameras that I'm checking are real low impact, right? So, um, at least I get an idea if they show up after dark, I can, or before dark, I, I, I know what way they're coming and going. I'm not necessarily going to set up close to that trail camera, if that makes sense. Right. So gnarly Charlie, he's this special buck that you've been talking about the last couple of years. Um, you told me that you think you're zeroing in on where you think he lives. How, how are you figuring that out? Why do you think you know that now? All right. So we had a conversation. Um, uh, man, it was this summer, right? I believe yeah. where I said, I'm going to take, I'm going to basically triangulate his position with all the trail camera data that I have of him. Every, t every spot that I have a, um, a, a trail camera picture. I'm going to put that on a map and then I'm going to take a line and I'm going to connect all the dots yep. and then I'm, I'm going to remove all the inner lines and everything within that, I guess it, it really does look like a triangle is where I feel that I'm going to have the best shot at killing him and everything outside of that. I'm probably won't be paying much attention to this year. Yep. All right. So, so what that does is it's just narrowed down the possibilities of where I can and cannot hunt, uh, for, you know, the next, you know, for the rut basically, or any terrain features leading like major terrain features, like big ridges, spur ridges, um, 
you know, draws, drainages, whatever, uh, big edge that lead into that. He's probably outside of that, uh, that triangle, but, you know, coming and going, you know, through, uh, specific terrain features. So I think like that's, that's just where I'm going to, I'm going to start just move in and, uh, you know, based off wind direction and access routes, work my way into these areas and just hunt real smart as to not blow, blow anything out, look for doe groups and maybe, maybe even set up like I'm trying to hunt these doe groups and just see what, see what comes through, look for fresh sign, which is crazy. There was hardly any active scrapes on huh. my farm. That's surprising. Yeah. But the bucks are there because I got trail camera pictures of them. Yeah. You know what I mean? So just like, it's like they've stopped. They're not even scraping. I mean, even places where there's a scrape last year, every five feet, nothing this year. Why would that know. be? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they're just laying the sign down in different places. Right. Um, or I mean, they gotta be doing it somewhere. I just, yeah. I can't believe they're not. Exactly. It, it's just, it's really weird. So, and it's not, I'm not a, I don't typically hunt on field edges anyway. Uh, very rarely. I mean, I, I will every once in a while, but, um, but most of the stuff is going to be in, in the timber as far as the strategy is concerned. Okay. So I'm looking at the picture you sent me of your properties you can hunt and the triangle you've made of the different data points. Okay. Let me pull it up once. Okay. Go ahead. So basically you've got inside that triangle, there is a large timbered system of draws essentially. Would you say that's accurate? And then there's some crop fields kind of in a half circle that go from the north side to the east side to the south side. Um, so it looks like food is on those three directions. And then if you go to the West, it's, it's more timber and cover mostly. Right. Right. Do you have any idea which one of those food sources is getting hit the most by the does? Like, is there, do you have any kind of inkling as to where, which side of this core bedding area he's going to be coming and going from? Is there like a cut cornfield that's just getting hammered right now that you think is going to be the first place that they're going to be heading or anything like that? Or is it? Or is it the opposite? And he could go any one of those directions, any random night. You've got no clue. Yeah, I think that's the the latter is what I honestly think. Um, there's cattle in the standing corn, which are in the uh, picked cornfields. So that keeps them into a certain area. But here's the thing, dude, there's acorns all over the place. Uh, yeah. So it's not like they're, they, they need to go out into the fields, right? Um, there is a picked bean field, but the activity that I saw there this weekend is minimal. There's, like I said, there's not even any scrapes on the, uh, however, I did bump a big 10 pointer, one I've never seen before out of a standing cornfield when I went to go put up a new trail camera, uh, this, this weekend. So, but that's outside of his, his core area. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So then let's let's walk me through the first couple hunts. Then your rutcation starts this next weekend, like the second, something like that. Is that right? Yeah. It it just depends, right? So historically, he's only been on the property late, like mid to late November. However, I'm getting more intel because I have more trail camera pictures up of him, okay. right? But uh, last year, the fir- I think it was. 
the 8th of November nocturnal pictures is when he started showing up within that triangle. I got another trail camera picture in a different location moving through. And I honestly think he, his core area is going to be to the north of that triangle. And he's coming into the triangle, you know, here and there for a couple days at a time. I doubt he really is betting there. But I think there might be a day or two where he he beds just because he's chasing a doe. It's you know he he lays down there for a while, not necessarily making it his home, and then goes outside of the triangle to check you know for a different doe group or uh, go back to bed. But as far as the next couple hunts, it's it's basically just going to be check my trail cameras when I'm near them and put my stands in terrain features that have the most deer movement, right? And so I'm talking like your, your typical rut features, terrain that funnels deer, right? As they travel back and forth. Yeah. So, so that and edge and bedding. So the stand, the, the, the stand location that I guess I, I sent you in, in there is just this nastiness, right? Where there is just, it's thick. It's actually where I found Spencer Newharth's shed this spring in that same thicket. Interesting. Yep. So the goal is to get a, and I think he comes through there. I don't necessarily think he lives there, but the does, there's a, a doe group that lives in and around that real nasty. It's basically a rectangle. I would say a hundred yards by a hundred yards square square of just overgrown thickness and I'm going to hunt on the corners of that square. That's the goal. So every, every direction, wind direction, I have a, an access route to get into that so that when, uh, you know, base, when a, when a buck comes through there on the downwind side, I have an opportunity, you know, to see him, maybe call him or, or just be a, be observant. Right. And I have no, I have no problem setting back a ways. Cause I think there's a big storm that's going to knock a lot of the leaves off, uh, leaves off the tree in the next, uh, week. So when I get there this weekend, there's going to be a lot less leaves on the tree. I'm going to be able to see through the timber a little bit better and maybe even have a couple observation sits that allow me to get an idea of where the deer are moving, but within calling range, if yeah. that makes sense. So if I see him, I can just see if it, you know, gets, gets their attention. Yeah. You, know you I mean? make, you make your example. There is, is an important point I think to just reemphasize, especially for newer hunters that at this time of year during the rut, one of the absolute best, most foolproof strategies to employ during the, you know this November time frame or late October is get downwind of a doe bedding area because these bucks, they're on their feet looking for females that are ready to breed. Where's the most likely to f- place to find a female for most of the day? It's a doe bedding area. So if these bucks are cruising looking for a doe that's ready to go, they're going to check those doe bedding areas. The way they check those doe bedding areas efficiently is by walking on the downwind side. So what you're doing is is like a just tried and true rut hunting tactic hunt the downwind edges of those bedding areas, watch what they're doing, adjust if you see something a little bit different. But that's a really good place to start. If anyone doesn't know how to get started over these next couple of weeks or you're trying to hunt a new property, find those nasty thickets where you always see does going in and out of, get downwind of them. I mean, you can't go wrong trying that. Right. 
Right. Absolutely. And even more of a favorite strategy than that is staging areas. Like I've, I found last year was a perfect example. I'm in a staging area where deer stop and chill out before they hit a ag field or they make, they expose themselves to the wide open. Right. Right. You know, like that, that first 10 yards of a feet from a field edge in, it's pretty thick and it almost creates an edge to the wide open timber or a wider open timber. And you can, if you match that with like a terrain feature, like what I did last year and the, and a right, like an aggressive wind direction, you're going to, what, what you're doing there is the deer only have so many options to go into an ag field and they just kind of, it's almost like they're, they're waiting to feel a little bit more comfortable, maybe waiting for the sun to go down a little bit. And if you can match that with a good terrain feature, and this is just my personal opinion, I, I wouldn't ever call myself an expert on whitetail hunting, but you're, you're putting yourself in a position where they're almost forced to take a certain path once they get out of this op- more open timber. So they're coming from their bedding area. They're using a travel corridor. They're staging. And if you can get a, a terrain feature to force them into a specific part of a staging area before they head out, that's just a killer spot. Yeah, you're, you're adding in like the pinch point idea. Yeah. You're kind of combining all those things to like the, find the spot within the spot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is- and that's tough for – that's tough for, let's say, a new guy. Like, uh, for example, I had a guy reach out to me on Instagram today, said he was he's not new to hunting, but he's new to bow hunting. And he's like, dude, give me some insight. And That's a know, big like, step. It's a big step a, to go from gun hunting said, to bow hunting. Right. Just be observant and think about think about it. You can't like you can't just say I'm going to be a bow hunter and I want to go kill a big buck or a mature buck or whatever. It, you just have to take these baby steps and keep your eyes open, your ears open and your brain open so that when, you, you know, all these things that you've learned over the years or you've talked about, it's like, holy cow, there is here's some edge. Oh, my God, there's a terrain feature. I better put a tree stand here. And then, <laughs> I hope I hope that in your real life, when you're out there hunting, you see these things, that there's this inner dialogue going on and that you sound just like that. I hope you're walking through it was like, oh, my God. I should put a tree stand here, <laughs> dude. It was it was funny today. I was checking, um, I was checking a, a trail camera, and so it was right off this fence crossing on a big pinch point, like uh, the big pinch is what I call it, right? Uh, a cattle pasture meets a big bend in a creek, and then there's a huge drop off that nothing goes up or down, that and it creates good. A, a, a big pinch point. Well, I walked into it just a little bit after I checked the trail camera, and remember a couple years ago when they logged it? Yes. And, and then it got, so a a certain part of this ridge got thick and there's a main trail and a couple small rubs that are going around it, which the trail got altered because the treetop was still there. So now they're going a little bit further north of the, or down the ridge to come around this, uh, this big deadfall. And I, I, out loud, I go, Ooh, like, <laughs> like the Pillsbury Doughboy. And I just caught myself. I go, I am so glad no one was with me to witness that. But it was just this click like, ooh, they're coming around here. Yeah. I have this. I can hit this access route and they're looping around and almost forcing, you know, when we when we say pinch point and we say travel corridor, 
these are gray areas, right? Because a pinch point doesn't need to be a giant pasture meeting a giant bend in a creek. It can be something as small as a deadfall forcing deer to go around mm-hmm. something, right? Yep. So when I say be observant, I'm saying look for things like that as well. Yeah. And and I think that's such a great point as if you're making that switch from gun to bow or if you're a new hunter in general uh, or if you're just trying to take that next step and kill big mature deer or whatever it is, that, that, that focus on observation and then – and we talk about this a lot. But the next step is then asking why. So you observe something and then ask why did that happen? And right. then try to figure that out. And when you start answering that question for yourself based off of your observations and a little bit of, you know, detection, detective work, that's when you start connecting the dots. And then I think if you do that for, over the next couple of weeks, you start observing a lot, thinking about why the deer are doing what they're doing and then adjusting to that. You, you're putting yourself in a good position to have success during the rut. I mean, right. focus on those doe bedding areas, focus on these different terrain features or cover features that push deer into smaller areas, pinch points, funnels. Those bucks are on their feet moving, trying to find does, find where they get concentrated. If you do that and then observe and adjust, I think you're, yeah. you're going to put yourself in a position for success. And then finally, I think my, my final high-level thought here on the rut, and this is, this is nothing new. This is not special. We say it every single year, but it's a grind. You got to grind it out. You got to put the time in. You got to try to stay positive and stay focused, even if you've hunted four days all day and you haven't seen crap. Um, it's always easier said than done. I always find myself sitting out there and be like, son of a mother, god dang, like I'm pissed off. Why, am I, why aren't we seeing anything? But then you just got to remember it can all change in five seconds. Right. Your whole season, just like that, can change. So you know, last always year, try to remember that. Last year, I was thinking about it. Last year, Within shooting range, I only had three deer the entire season come within shooting range. Now, I didn't shoot a doe last year. Um, I had three, two does and the buck that I killed. Wow. That was it. And so I wasn't necessarily focused on trying to shoot a doe last year uh, just because of the time situation. But what I'm getting at is that's – and and this is a little bit more of an advanced strategy for people who, you know, have been into it. But, and if, if you are an experienced bow hunter, you already know this, but for me, I don't care about seeing small little bucks. I don't care about seeing deer anymore. I care about seeing a deer one, you know, the, the deer that are, that are on my to, to do list, so to speak. And, if I go into an area and only see one or two deer and it's the deer, then I'm happy. You know what I mean? That makes me happy. And on this uh, tree stand that I set up this weekend in that uh, – on the corner of one of those tr- – uh, that triangle or that uh, – excuse me, the that big thicket that I was talking to you about, I know that when the time is right, I'm going to have two shots right? So I am now, I'm not setting up for a deer could come any direction. I'm assuming deer are coming from one of two directions. Yeah. And I, I know that I have a shot here and I know that I have a shot here. And then to be honest with you, I have a wall of thickness in front of me that I can't even see through. So 
I, I know from not only experience, historical data, and just from how deer use the terrain that they're going to come from one or t- one of two spots, and I better be ready when it happens. It all comes down to or comes back to that more informed approach. The more and more yep. you learn about these areas, the more focused you can be with where you hunt, how you set up. You get to that point where you are, where you you know, well, I'm just I'm just really trying to hunt this deer or these two deer. And the rest I'm not worried about. And I know it's going to come from one of these two spots and the rest I'm not worried about. And that's that advanced stage where you have so much intel, so much experience. Um, it's a good place to be. 32 yards. Can you make 30, the shot? 32 yards, yeah. 32 <laughs> yards on it is going to be the max at this stand. And the stand that I set up, I think if it goes down, I feel like it's going to go down there on a north or any type of an east wind, which are very rare. All right. Well, we've got some easterly winds coming in at the end of this week, at least over here. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So I'm not calling my shot. I'm just saying, like, I feel like, you know, when you set up a tree stand, you already know what wind direction you're going to hunt it in. Oh, yeah. you got the the game plan in mind for sure. Yeah. So, like, well, so are you jacked? I'm I know, I know we're, we're trying to cut this up, but now after talking about it, my <laughs> calmness has kind of gone away and it could be the coffee. I'm like, I drink a lot of coffee these days <laughs> and it, I think it could be the coffee mixed with me talking about it now is starting to get me choo choo, mm-hmm. choo choo, you know, like, yeah, buddy. I, uh, I am really excited, particularly cause I just got word from a friend that Tran was spotted moving in daylight right uh, right in my neck of the woods last night, right where I can oh, hunt. Boy. So I'm going in after him tonight. Going to try That'd to get awesome. that pre-rut special on old Mr. Tran. He's a, he is a stud of an eight-pointer. So last, last question I have for yeah. you. How's Furter doing these days? You know what? <laughs> Furter's disappointing me, Dan. Oh. He posts on Instagram the other day. And I'm really excited. He's up at 5.30 a.m. I'm like, all right, the guy's getting off his tail and doing some hunting. Good for him. I'm proud of him. Um, we, we got access to a new property this year that we're sharing. Um, yep. and, and I haven't been out there yet just because I've got these other things going on. He, you know, this is the best spot he has to deer hunt. So I was really excited. He's going to hunt that hard and learn it and stuff. And he's only been out there once all season. So it's 5.30 a.m. I see him posting these heading out to hunt. I'm jacked. All right. All right. The guy's going to go out there and get it done. He's going to check the cameras, pumped. The next picture he posts. I saw it. He's duck hunting. That son of a bitch. He's out there duck hunting. And I'm like, dude, get after the bucks. You got to get Man. after the bucks. Does Furter, does Furter have any Iowa points? Ah, uh, you know, I think he bought one point and he was oh, talking right. about trying to buy some more. And I don't know if he ever continued, but I know he gotcha. at least got one. Um, what, you think he needs to come out and experience the Iowa magic? Well, I I don't know. Like, There's part of me that's like, hey, get into Iowa Point, come to Iowa, and then I, I'll have some guys take him duck hunting. <laughs> yeah. like, come he's, on, man. I mean, does, get is he a big straight. duck hunter? Is he a big duck hunter? He's I, never, don't, I don't understand. No, he's never duck hunted before. This, this is his first time. Oh, okay. So just something to do that was different. Yeah, and, and I get it. It looks like fun. Um, yeah. so I, I just kid, it's great. He got out there, had a good time, but I really was hoping he was going to shoot a big giant buck and text me a picture of that. So yeah, right. one of these days, Dan, if we give him enough crap, 
he'll get his stuff in order and get out there and chase the whitetails. Hey, I got, I have an idea. Yeah. Let's make a t-shirt that <laughs> says something like I know further and have a picture of his face on it and then <laughs> sell it and donate all the money to charity. I think it's a great idea. Do you think anybody would buy it though? <laughs> Shit. Yeah. I'd buy it. I know further and I know, I know further shirt. I think that's, I think that would be money. Oh my God. Okay. If anyone has the design Dude, how many skills, people, how many people listen to this podcast? Many tens of thousands. Right. All right. So if we sell them for 20 bucks and only 5,000 people buy them, right. Uh, and then we give the, you know, give all the, the money that we make from it to some charity, man, that's a lot of money. I mean, that would be a lot of money if someone yeah. could find a picture of further online. And I, what I'm envisioning is kind of, do you remember the image of, uh, of president Obama when he was running for office originally, it's like kind of yes. like a, like the, yes. yeah, the, the, the drawing. Yes. The hope picture. So imagine like Josh's face, Furter's face like that yes. on a t-shirt that yes. if somebody can do that and is willing to let us use that image, uh, you know, a guy who can make t-shirts, right, Dan? I, Mr. I do. Mr. Czar might be able to help us do something like that. Yes. Um, that's a funny idea. If we can actually get that, I would be all about it. Don't right. I mean we should probably donate to QDMA since that's where further works. Hey, um, done. That'd be a good idea. Done. Let's make some money. I, I know we're talking about the rut here and all this stuff, but at the same time, right? We have to be responsible hunters and give back and uh, the QDMA, right? And yes. uh, you know, talk about conservation a little bit. And this is the perfect way to do it. Sign sealed, delivered. Um, do we have to get like a, a waiver for further to sign, or do we just like? treat him as you know he's a piece of meat man yeah he's a piece of meat <laughs> he's okay. just a piece of meat we're not even gonna tell him <laughs> <laughs> all right let's see what we can do <laughs> let's do it all right and i think with that uh let's wrap up the intro uh we're gonna get jared on here in a minute to talk more about what he thinks about hunting the rut but uh until then dan i wish you all of the deer hunting luck in the world same let's to you brother get it done Let's have the rut of our lives. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. 
lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. All right, with me now on the line is Jared Mills. Welcome to the show, Jared. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Me too. I've been following along with your hunts and stories for a lot of years now, it seems like. So I'm glad we're finally getting to chat and uh, and connect like this. So thank you for making the time. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's cool to hear that you've been following that. It seems like I've been doing it forever now, but it's uh, it's still as fun now as it was day one. It's crazy how fast time flies. I was just thinking about that. Like I remember when I first started Wired to Hunt, it was I think the first year that you guys that Bill had started Midwest Whitetail, and I remember watching his first season while I was starting the Wired to Hunt blog way back. I just got out of college, and um, man, everything's come a long way since then. It's crazy how long ago that was. Yeah, and it's crazy too just to see how everything evolves, and especially in this digital age, and just how. Even Midwest Whitetail, how it's changed since it started back in 2008. It's just, it's pretty cool how to see just how everything develops and just trying to keep up with everything. Oh, yeah. It's uh, interesting times. Like you said, lots of change, lots of change. So, so speaking of that in Midwest Whitetail, um, can you just fill folks in who maybe aren't familiar with, with who you are or what you do or what Midwest Whitetail is or all the other things you've got going on? Can you just give us a real quick cliff notes intro to you and, and the work you're doing over there? Yeah, absolutely. So Midwest Whitetail, first of all, it's you know, a, a digital hunting show. It's it's always the bread and butter has always been the online semi-live format started back in 2008. Um, I joined Middle Switetail as an intern in 2010 and then became full-time with them for a little while working for Bill. And then I, I kind of did some other things as full-time job in between, uh, some sales jobs. And uh, But I always continued to produce Middle Switetail from my house. And uh, recently got back into the hunting industry full-time. And now as of earlier this year, um, I have a production company called 41 North Media, and we produce a number of different hunting shows, deer, turkey, a little bit of everything, um, and Middle Fightel is one of those shows we produce. So it's me and three other full-time guys, and we have currently six interns right now as well. So this is no doubt our busy time of year. You know, it's just nonstop video production every day, late nights especially when we're all trying to hunt each day too, but, (laughs) um, it's, uh, it's fun. It's pretty cool to just, you know, take stuff we're filming it, take it from concept and see it through room production side. And it's fun to to produce a lot of shows for companies like Realtree and Cabela's and and some other names, um, just to kind of stay connected and uh, get to work on some pretty cool projects. So that's, yeah. that's what I've been up to. I've been, like I said, with Midas Whitetail. I'm still filming for Midas Whitetail. 
uh, I think this is my ninth or tenth year doing it. We're getting old. <laughs> We're getting old, Jared. <laughs> that is the truth. I feel uh, it too. Yeah, I like the. I re- I really like the fact though that you guys have done such a good job of getting stuff out fast. Like you, you guys are yeah. probably the best, if not you know one of the best at getting really close to real time updates out. Your your blog, the video blogs, almost daily updates. That's always been something I thought was pretty cool. So for anyone out there who wants to follow along with some great whitetail stories, uh, you guys definitely have some to share. And that's that's really why I wanted to talk to you, Jared, because you are obviously getting after it really hard every year, year after year, chasing big whitetail bucks. But then you're also surrounded by a bunch of other buddies and people that are part of Midwest Whitetail or the production company that are also doing the same. So I feel like you must be getting this huge influx of recent intel and different ideas and updates on how things are going in the field. I'm sure you're just hearing this from all over the place every year, year after year. Um which I imagine kind of fills you out with a pretty wide breadth of knowledge and, and ideas and stuff. And yeah. when it comes to the rut, I mean, that's where we're at right now. The Super Bowl is just about upon us. The The day this episode is going to go out, unless I bomb something and mess this up, <laughs> it's going to come out on Halloween. So November Eve, this podcast will be dropping. So great day. it really is. I mean, I'm not sure there's any time I'm more excited than right the very beginning of it all. So I figured we would just pick your brain on all things rut and see if we can help some folks out and uh, lead to some tags getting filled here. So are you up for that? Absolutely. I can't wait. Uh, it's hard, so hard to believe that November's almost here already. I know. We're just trying to, uh, just trying to figure out, make sure you're ready to go because once, it, once it's here, it's a blur and um, you're just trying to catch up or you know keep up i guess i should, I should say yes. so yeah i can't wait it's it's right around the corner yeah it's uh, it snuck up on me too and so so i need an update from you uh because yeah. i'm a little bit behind on some of your video updates and things like that but early on you were chasing a, a mega giant of some kind there was a huge buck you were after you were a little bit yeah a little bit uh careful about how much you were going to share because there's a lot yeah. of other guys after it and I could really relate to that because last year I had a buck that was not a buck that you usually see in Michigan. And I was hunting this deer that was it would have really turned some heads. And so I was kind of nervous to talk too much about it too. So I waited until after I killed yeah. him. And then after I killed him, then I showed pictures and stuff. Um, yeah. So your story was like, oh, yeah, I, I know how that feels. So <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. Can you give us an update on the giant? Is he still alive? Did someone get him? Um, and then secondly – are you going to be getting after him soon? Yeah, I'd be happy to. It, it's definitely a unique situation. I, you know, I, I mentioned I've been on the Tail for nine or ten years and, and showcasing my hunts in a you know, near real-time format. And I've never not shown anything. I've never had to really worry about it. And it's not necessarily the size of this deer that, that I have to chase this year that's making it like that. A little, a little bit it, it is, but it's more about um, – you know, just the the situation with the, the neighbors, and I have a buddy that's also hunting, and we're sharing all our information. But um, there's other people that hunt that property, and by giving out that info, it would affect his hunting and his chances to kill him. So it was just it, it was a decision I had to make um, with regards to not ruining personal relationships just to show the deer. Yeah. Um, and then I decided, you know, with the video blogs, at least still share the journey of it so people can still follow along even if they can't physically see the photo or the 
video of the deer until obviously it's dead then we can show everything but you know it's tough i knew i would you know know, people don't really understand some people do some people don't you know they expect they've come to expect to see everything on the show and i get that too it's just this kind of a unique situation um if it was anything different i would love to to just show everything as it happens um so it's, it's been kind of interesting in that regard but yes i am still hunting him um i've had actually four encounters with him now whoa three three on camera one we didn't get any footage of him but uh the most recent one was within the last week i uh i thought i had him he was walking straight to us about 50 60 yards and uh, a couple of those actually intercepted him. They were coming down a different trail, and he saw or smelled them and went their direction and never came back. Ugh. But it's been, man, it's been unbelievable, this, the, the hunt for this deer. I've, I can tell you I've never been more aggressive on a single deer in my life, um, especially in October. You know, we're not even in November yet, and I've, I've moved in on this deer just done some crazy things to get close to this deer just because I think my time is kind of limited. I don't know when this deer's going to change his patterns, and I just figured that I have to hunt him while he's showing some daylight movement, and I pretty much know where he's bedding. He's not traveling too terribly far. I just kind of felt that that was the right move and even had one encounter where, which is this is – not necessarily my style either, but I, I, it was my only only option. I thought to get close to where he's bedding because he's bedding in a big CRP field, and I moved in on him. I went basically inch by inch to get to the spot I wanted to be in. It took me two hours to go a hundred yards. Wow! And I think I got set up at five uh, five forty five. And at 5:55, he stepped out at 20 yards. <laughs> but and then and, and you know I'm I'm on the ground behind this tiny little bush. He came out and he was just locked on me from the moment his rack and his head appeared from the CRP. He was just locked on me. I don't know if he heard me setting up or what happened, but he came, he walked into 12 yards just straight at me, and I couldn't do anything. It was just I was just frozen. I couldn't couldn't turn or anything. So he was looking at me the whole time. Wow! But to to be looking up at a deer like that at twelve yards, I mean, it's it was one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had. And I can't wait to to share the video with guys. Wow! It's uh, it was pretty cool. I mean, the only thing I can I don't know if you ever saw. I filmed a, a pretty cool buck fight back in two thousand twelve. I and, do think uh, I, saw, I saw that one. Yeah, the one in the creek. Um, that's probably the only thing I can compare it to as far as just the, the surreal feeling and the experience in the woods I've had. That's probably the only thing that's that's comparable to it. So I've been getting close. It's been a, a pretty cool hunt. And uh, it, you know, we talk about it only being October. I feel like it's late November as hard as I've been hunting that deer. <laughs> but, He's wearing so, you out. Yeah, it's been it's been a cool journey. And hopefully it's nowhere near the end either yeah so okay so you're still on this deer it's just about yep. november so this is probably a good place to start then as as far as talking about hunting the rut once november okay. hits and the rut starts really kicking into gear can you kind of describe how you imagine your strategy changing how you're going to adjust your hunt given that the rut is is popping yeah i'm a big trail camera guy so a lot of that's going to be monitoring trail cameras it's for me 
I like to target specific deer. In this case, it's it's this buck, and then I have another deer that's on um, a farm that I own um, that I'm also pursuing. But you know, with chasing specific deer, it's it's all about learning how that deer uses a certain area, where he uses it. And that's one thing I've learned over the years is bucks are very individual. Um, there's similarities you can draw across you know, years of experience, but in general, I can't just go to a farm and hunt my best stand. It's uh, it's all about what that deer specifically does, how he travels, how he acts and in, in during certain weeks and months of the year, um, all that. So trail cameras plays a big part in that for me and, and just learning that deer and his tendencies and, and things like that. So that's what I'll continue to do with this big deer. If he's showing daylight movement in a certain area that I know that I could hunt him, I'm going to keep being aggressive. Um, if he kind of disappears for a while and or the conditions aren't great, I'm not going to get crazy about hunting him. I'm going to go somewhere else. Um, I imagine this deer's going to travel quite a bit. The property that I'm hunting him on is very small, and a lot of people know about this deer, which obviously means he travels quite a bit. So that's why that's kind of goes back to why I was being so aggressive in October is I just, I know it's going to change at any day. Um, and he's you know, a, a hundred yards away from jumping the fence and being shot by someone else or, you know, anything can happen. So it's just about monitoring trail cameras and really just figuring out how he changes his patterns and adjusting to that. Yeah. So t- tell me about your rut trail camera strategy where where are you putting your cameras this time of year is it is it different do you you know when november hits or when the pre-rut hits or something do you shift your cameras in any kind of way um what's the locations look like for those i don't shift them a lot usually from about the first of october uh up until late season my cameras always remain on scrapes um i pulled some cards this morning and the scrapes here and i were just on fire almost every branch that remotely looks like a licking branch is at the right height it's it's torn up right now so yeah i love that that's where i leave them and and the reason i don't move them a lot is just to keep disturbance down um in my experience those scrapes will continue to be hot all the way through november it's just not worth going around and adjusting too much and, and doing too much damage uh when you don't really need to yeah um but yeah and then you know, with trail cameras specifically is a little bit off topic, but um, I like to try to have as many elements as possible when setting up a camera. So I usually have a scrape, but it's also usually on an intersection of trails or the edge of a field or something like that, where I get more than just the scrape activity. I get the travel uh, routes and, and directions and stuff like that, too. I want as much information from one single camera location as possible yeah i like that what about how you're specifically setting up are you uh hanging high in the tree and pointing down do you put it at eye level do you have a certain i don't know do you worry about deer noticing the camera at all i don't i i like eye level i think i the reason i just i like quality pictures too much you know i, I think <laughs> yeah. he, he could probably get away with you know hiding them and make sure you don't do any damage um but most deer, in my experience, haven't been too scared of cameras. But this this kind of goes back to me talking about bucks being individuals. There are, there are some that react differently. 
you know, some will come in, not care, they'll work the scrape really aggressively. Uh, some you'll still get their picture, but they, you know, once that camera starts going off, they'll just walk away. Um, so it's, you know, there's times where you know, maybe it'd be better to, to hide the camera a little bit more, point it down so it's not in their face. But in general, I think I just like quality photos too much. And even I, I use some white flash cameras still too, just because those night pictures are, are so, so cool that I just, I know they react a little more to the white flash, but it's worth it in my opinion. Yeah, it's hard to, uh, I certainly can relate sometimes. Those pictures sometimes are just as much fun as anything. <laughs> oh, man, I just, yeah, I love the whole process of running trail cameras, even even well past the hunting strategy aspect of it. I just, I like learning about deer through trail cameras. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So one of the things that I'm always debating when it comes to my camera setups during the rut is the fact that stuff changes so fast during the rut. It can be on in a location for today, and then tomorrow it could yep. be crickets. So it seems like getting trail camera intel quick is really important. But on the other hand, I'm like you in that I'm really always trying to keep my presence low. I want to be in there as minimally as possible. So I always have this right. debate internally. I'm like, should I check cameras or should I stay away? And I go back and forth, right. back and forth, back and forth. How how do you think about that? How often are you checking your cameras and how do you try to minimize that impact during the rut? Yeah, I have the same mindset as you. I mean, you, you want to be smart about everything, but at the same time, you want as much information as possible. Um, I do two things. One, I try to set the cameras up in easy to access locations, um, places that easy to drive to with the UTV or something so that I'm not leaving grounds in. I'm, I'm in an area where deer are used to seeing some type of activity. I want to pull in those. And then, uh, the second thing that's really changed in the last couple of years for me is I'm, I'm using a system from Cuddy Back called Cuddy Link. And that's a pretty slick system because you can get, um, I think it's up to 15 or 16 cameras to communicate to one home camera. So you can put the home camera in an easy access location and put all the other ones out, you know, wherever, bedding areas, just quarries, just places that are hard to access. Um, and those, those pictures get sent to your one easy to access camera. And that's really changed my strategy for uh for setting up trail cameras so on farms where i can use that cuddy link um i'm more apt to get past the, the easy access locations set them up in bedding areas deep in the timber stuff like that and get that information and that's that's been a game changer for sure yeah that's pretty nice to to let those sit and not need to go physically visit them i've i haven't used that in particular but i've used other cell camera type things like that and that can help a right. ton yeah, no doubt. I haven't used too much of the cell cams yet, um, but the, yeah, this, this cutting link, you still have to physically go to the property and pull the card, but at least you don't have to go visit every camera. It's a huge time saver, too. When you're oh, checking yeah. a lot of cameras, it makes a big difference. Yeah, I bet. So when, you, when you're looking at camera pictures, too, you, I think I heard you mention the fact that you're looking at past data as well. Do you pay much attention to annual patterns and see these bucks doing something similar year after year or any kind of trend like that? I do, but not in the sense of like really like micro at the micro level. I, it's more like general area usage as opposed to, well, on this day last year with these conditions, he walked on this trail. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't go to that level, but I will say, you know, 
during this first two weeks of November, he was really using this part of the form last year. And I'm really going to focus on that and in the hopes that he does it again. So, yes, I do look at that, but not at the level that some guys do, I don't think. Yeah, I feel like that's that's pretty well in line with what I've found is, is you can get a general trend, a general idea. Like this time of year, he basically he usually starts moving or this area he tends to get hot at this point but they're still individual wild animals that just do random things sometimes so whatever they want yeah exactly and and that could just be i just personally haven't seen something like that work out exactly twice you know two years in a row but uh in general i agree with you i think sometimes their patterns are a lot more random yeah so do you have any kind of data like that on either of these two target bucks from last year or previous years that's going to help you one of them i do the one that's not not the giant i don't really have this is my first year hunting that property i've helped manage it over the years but i've never personally hunted it um this deer i think seems to travel a lot just again based on a lot of neighborhood information um the other buck that i'm targeting so a buddy and I bought this property. This is my first farm I've ever owned. Bought it in 2017. And he and I had our first hunt together there on November 3rd of 2017. And this deer, uh, I call Marino, uh, he walked underneath our tree stand. We had a few trail cam pictures of him before our, our first hunt. And we kind of decided that uh, not really knowing, not having history, we are going to pass this deer. thought he's maybe four and a half years old. He walked underneath our tree stand our very first hunt, like 15 minutes after getting set up. <laughs> it was just the coolest experience on your, your first farm. You know, I just achieved the lifelong dream of owning a property and, and have a deer like this walk underneath us. I mean, he's probably, I mean, he's a really good deer, pushing like 160 type deer as a four-year-old. Jeez. And so I do have a lot of information on him from 2017, 2018, and now into this year. He doesn't really look all that much different than he did as a four and a half year, a little more mass and a lot bigger body. But it is pretty cool having that many years of history and really getting to know how it uses certain areas. So I feel like I have a, a, a pretty good idea of, of what he likes to do throughout the course of late October and into November. Can you describe that? Can you tell us what you think he's going to do and how you're going to let, let's say the big giant is out of the picture for some reason. And now you're just focusing on Merino. November arrives. Can you kind of walk me through the stuff, you know, and then how you would try to hunt based off that? Yeah. Um, essentially the, uh, because we kind of got a late start in 2017, I don't have a whole lot of October information from that first year, but both last year and this year, he slowly made his way from one arm, one end of the farm to the other uh, throughout the year. Um, it's been pretty interesting to watch that. And I think a lot of it has to do with uh, crops coming out and, and stuff like that. He kind of sucks in once all, once all the neighborhood cover starts disappearing. Um, so essentially he started at the north end of, the, of our farm last year and he did the same again this year. Pretty, pretty nocturnal activity. I'm not sure if it was just he was moving more at night or he was bedding a lot further away from than where our cameras were at. But he slowly started to do the same thing he did last year. As you get to November, he becomes a lot more active on the farm, a lot more daylight active. He's he's bedding kind of back in our main peninsula where most of the other deer bed. Um so he's he kind of made that transition and within the last 
week to two weeks, I would say. And that's pretty much in line with last year. And then he's pretty much there the the rest of the year. Um, uses one main kind of travel corridor, of course, branches out a little bit, just looking for does or whatever, but he kind of uses the central part of our farm. Um, it's just, it's all about making sure we can get in and out undetected. It's kind of a tough farm to hunt access wise, but if, if we're good about access and keep disturbance down, we should have a really good shot at this deer as November comes in. That's exciting. So how do you act or how can you carefully access it? Like what is the solution to that challenge? So the ultimate solution is to put a boat in the water about a mile away and, and actually boat in because oh, our, our farm is along a river. Um, it's just a lot harder logistically. I don't own a boat, so it'd be far on someone's boat to, to make it work. And I have done that. We've had some good hunts. I should have done that this morning with where we hunted. Um, <laughs> but uh, for me, it's it's an everyday decision on how I should access sometimes. Sometimes I'll drive, I have an electric UTV. Sometimes I'll drive the UTV way back in the timber, not to leave ground set and uh, try to park it in some brush. Um, sometimes I will leave it out further away and walk further than you're kind of leaving the ground scent, but it's still quieter than driving a UTV. So I, I don't know. I don't have a great answer. It's, uh, it's just some farms are just harder to access and there's no, real great solution to it um other than just trying to have some luck on your side every once in a while yeah do you find yourself ever limiting how often you hunt it more than usual because of that because i've got a farm kind of like that and i because of i know that every time coming in and out is going to be more of an impact than i really wish it was i've been thinking uh what am I trying to say here? I've been really, really picky about when I go in and out because I know it's an impact every time just because of that access. Is that something you think about? I do. And that, that actually plays into one of my bigger strategies overall. And that's uh, moving around a lot. So I will, I'll hunt it a little bit less, but my more often than not solution is to move around on the farm because I'm a big, big believer in first time in, um, and not, not just first time in on property, but first time in a specific tree, uh, the, the success rates are so much higher in my experience. Um, and it just keeps decreasing every time you hunt the same spot. You know, I think we do a lot more damage than we think we do after the hunt. Even if you don't see, you seem to spook any deer during that hunt, you know, there's a lot of deer that could come by a day later, two days later, three days later. And, uh, figure out what you disturb, whether that's ground sand. And they're just very keen of, you know, keenly aware of their surroundings. Um, so I, I will move around almost intentionally thinking that I probably spooked a deer. This is how they're going to adjust. This is where I'll set up and I'll, I'll bounce around a lot. I do 90% of my hunts are hanging hunts where we're carrying in tree stands, setting them up and then take them down after the hunt. So I like to be very mobile and that gets me a lot higher percentage of hunts that are first time in because, you know, I'm hunting new trees all the time. Yeah. yeah I so imagine. on a farm like that, yeah, that, that's kind of my strategy. I don't necessarily, I hunt a little bit less when it's bad access, but I probably just move around a lot more when I know there's a good chance I'd disturb something. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and, and I 
hundred percent understand the the thought process there. I, I, I'm trying to do more and more of that myself. What I'm curious about though is, especially for people that are just getting started, trying to do more of that hang and hunt idea, it can be a little tricky. It's hard to do quietly. It's hard to do in the dark. Uh, it's hard to do when you haven't done it a whole lot. Yeah. Any things you've learned over the years, having done this for so long, that could help someone just become more efficient doing a hang and hunt or I don't know, any way to keep from spooking so many deer when you're getting set up or anything that you're thinking about when you go in and out doing that? Yeah. Um, a lot of it's just practice. You, you need to d- develop a system that works for you. You know, how you specifically pack your sticks to your stand or, you know, maybe if you're saddle hunting, how, how you pack everything together. But um, it, it all just comes down to routine. And the other big thing I would tell people too is because I find myself doing this still, but it's just it's take your time and be quiet and be safe when setting up. That's a huge one. But I think we get in these situations where it's starting to crack light, and you, you're like, well, I just need to get I need to get in the tree. I need to get set up. And you you uh, break more branches. You make more noise. Um, you should kind of start sweating, giving off more scent and like all these little things that if you just take your time and go slower, um, that tends to be a little more efficient. You tend to be a little bit more stealthy that way. Um, so kind of just telling yourself, take your time. I mean, there's, there's no, you're going to do more damage by rushing than you are. If you just take your time. And even if you get set up a little late, I, when I'm, when I'm hanging hunting in the dark in the morning, I like to get in there really early. I think we were walking into the woods almost two and a half hours before the official sunrise time this morning. Um, so I like to just give myself plenty of time. I'm not afraid to use a flashlight. I don't think it bothers the deer too much. I use a little red light so I can see what I'm stepping on. And so I can see, obviously, for hanging sticks in the stand. Um I think those are the main things. The biggest thing I tell guys that are just starting out on hanging hunting is just be safe. Um, there's a lot more that can go wrong if you're hanging tree stands every hunt and taking down tree stands every hunt. Just always make sure you're connected to the tree. Um, that's a big one that I like to push. Yeah, that's a very important point. Um, speaking yeah. of moving stands and hanging stands you know, every day or whatever, one of the dilemmas that I've found myself in a handful, quite a few times over the years, is it's it's the rut, and I'm in a good rut location. You know, one of those spots that you know should be good for this time of the year. Maybe I'm in a, some kind of pinch point, or maybe I'm you know downwind of a bedding of a doe bedding area. The spots that just scream great rut location. So I'm yep. set up there, but then I see a mature buck, maybe my my target buck, and I see him go move somewhere else. And then you are sitting there thinking, okay. Should I take advantage of that recent intel? I just saw him do something. Do I think he's going to do it again? Should I go move and get closer to the action? Or do I stay put where I know should be good for the rut, but I just saw the buck I want and he's somewhere else? Do you do you chase sightings like that, or will you stick it out for the day or something like that if you know you're in a good location? Like, I think the bigger picture question I'm asking is how – do you make adjustments during the rut? Is it all based off what you see or do you stick to how the terrain should move deer and, and hope that they come through there eventually? I I adjust way more often than I sit and hope that the spot works out based on me thinking it's a good spot. Um, I adjust all the time. Even if it's a matter of moving 30 yards, 40 yards, uh, I do that all the time. 
I can think back to, and not just a specific deer. I'll, I'll watch generally how the deer move through a property, especially if I'm trying to learn a property that I don't have a lot of years experience on. Um, and that's kind of been my situation over the past four or five years. I've hunted a lot of different new farms, just losing permission, gaining permission, uh, stuff like that. So, and it's a lot of fun learning a new property, but, um, you know, it, it's a challenge too. And, and my biggest strategy is just learning and adjusting on the fly. So I'll, I'll have a hunt, observe what I, what, whatever happens, and then I'll move based on what I saw that night or what cameras are telling me, of course, too. But more often I'm moving based on the actual sightings during hunts. Um, I can give an example of the deer I killed in 2016. Um, as a brand new property I didn't know anything about, and I just slowly started to learn it and I did a lot of quote unquote observation sits where I could just see a lot. They weren't necessarily out of the game, not being able to kill deer, but it was just spots where I know I could see a lot and adjust if I needed. And every hunt I would move and I'd, I'd move 50 yards one way and, um, just every hunt I would try something new. And eventually I found the spot where most of the deer seemed to be moving to in the mornings. It was a tiny little woodlot. And I believe it was November 21st, I moved in there for a morning hunt, did a hanging hunt in the dark. And shortly after sunrise, I had a, a giant deer walk into seven yards and I killed him. And that I wouldn't have done that if it wasn't a constant adjusting game throughout those first three weeks of November. Um, it just all the pieces led to that little wood lot and that's where I killed that big deer. So to answer your question, I, I do adjust a lot, even if it's only a small distance, like I said, 25 or 30 yards. Sometimes that's enough to put you in the game or at least give you that sighting to make the next move. Yeah, but man, that's like the hardest move for me. When you know you can, I gotta, I'd see him if I stayed here, but you're right, I gotta move that 20 yards to get a shot with a bow. Making that decision, yeah. at least for me, you're fighting a serious amount of lazy human nature. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm, I'm so close, yeah. but the details just matter so much when you're bow hunting these deer. Um, yeah, which, and of course there's situations where you should stay. I, you know, I'm talking in general in my experience, but if there's situations where you've seen that buck in the spot you're already sitting before, uh, he just happened to be, you know, 50 yards away that day, then maybe I'm going to sit, you know, if, if my past information tells me that that buck is still moving here, you know, I may not be quite as apt to move, but if not, then I would absolutely move. That's a good point. What about and, and this is this is particularly relevant to to the rut. What if it's um, November third or fourth or fifth or somewhere in that early November period, and you see something, you observe a buck you're after, and it's in the morning. Would you move actually that day if you saw something? Then he moves off. Would you get down right then and there, or get down at midday and make a, an adjustment right then, or do you like to stick it out till the next day? Um, I would say I made a lot of moves that day. Because most of the time your conditions are going to be a little bit more similar that same day than they might be the following day. You know, whatever it is, the temperature change, the pressure change, whatever, it's usually somewhat different that next day. So I would rather hunt those same conditions. And that visual sighting tells me what area he's in right now. Um, so I'm going to make an adjustment on that as opposed to leaving and having that 24-hour period where who knows where he's going to go. 
I'm probably more out to make that make that move sooner rather than later. Yeah. Something I've seen a little bit, I've seen it a handful of times myself, and I've heard a lot of people talk about, I'm curious if you've seen this too, is that sometimes during the rut when a buck's locked on a doe or chasing the doe, a doe will will take a buck through a certain area. Let's say passes by a big oak tree. You'll watch it from 100 yards away. And Mm -hmm. if you keep watching it, she might come back through another time or two more times throughout the daily. It seems like sometimes these does have got a buck on them. They'll almost have a loop of sorts. And so because of that, I've always tried, if I see a doe take a buck somewhere once, I'm going to try to get on that path and hope they come back through again. Um, have yeah. you seen the same thing? Is that the, the kind of thing you would move on in that kind of case? I, uh, yeah, I think I would do the same. I haven't personally seen that. I have heard guys talk about it. Um, but yeah, I would, it's kind of, I would probably move for the same reasons we just talked about on the previous point. Just that's what I saw. I'm going to move there uh, with the hopes of them coming back by, even if it's a little bit different movement than what you're specifically referring to. I still know that, or I still feel that I'm, my chances are going to be better where I just saw them rather than just waiting it out where I'm at. Yeah. You mentioned the fact that you have been hunting a lot of new properties recently. Yeah, and and you touched a little bit, I think, on a couple of things you probably do. You mentioned observation stands, um, but can you share anything else you do when you're trying to figure out a new farm? I mean, I don't know. There might be people heading out for their rut vacation, and it's their first mm-hmm. time hunting this new farm, maybe, and they're here for a week or two in November. Anything you do to try to learn in the rut on a new spot? Yeah, that's the biggest one that I already hit on. Just put yourself in spots that you can see a lot and learn from. Um, if not, if you don't have time, maybe your hunt's a little bit shorter. Maybe it's only a week or something. You don't really have time to, you know, you can call it a waste of a hunt if you're sitting in an observation stand. But um, then it comes down to aerial scouting. And you can just look at a lot of the, a lot of stuff, the, the terrain features and everything that, historically have been good for you, whether that's looking for good funnels on the property or ridges or whatever you like to hunt personally. Um, but if, if the guy does have the time, I've learned so much about properties, just being out there and visually observing. And sometimes I've got permission on properties in late October and I've haven't been afraid to go in there, spend one day, maybe it's a rainy day uh, where your leftover scent's not going to be as bad and just put a lot of boots on it, put a lot of miles on your boots and just walk around, check out how the terrain lays, check out where the sign is, um, trails are, uh, where the food is. Um, I wouldn't be afraid to walk around. If you can do it on ideal conditions, like I said, with the rain or high winds or something, that'd be best. But it's so much different seeing something, whether it's from a stand or just walking around the property than it is looking at aerial map. And, And that's what I like to do more often than not. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via 
convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go. But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Yeah. What's the kind of stuff that you're really keying in on when you're walking around and actually scouting like that? Uh, Are you... You know, some guys really love rub lines. Some guys are obsessed with a great scrape area or something like that. What's the sign that you are really wanting to see that will help you zero in on something? I like terrain features that force movement a certain way. Um, like the, like a head of a ditch would be a good example of that. Um, because usually that comes with a couple of different things. One, you pretty much know how the deer are going to travel through there. But two, it usually gives you a good direction to blow your wind too. So, um, and I like using creeks and ditches and stuff like that for access. So I like, I like finding terrain features that, that kind of manipulate the deer movement or force the deer movement a certain way. Um, that's probably one of my favorite ones. I'm not huge on hunting scrape lines, rub lines, things like that. Just cause I, just by looking at it without camera knowledge, I don't know whether that's middle of the night or um, daytime or anything like that. And it, they, they kind of seem to be a little bit inconsistent as far as which bucks use them when, in my experience. So I, I like to look at more terrain stuff like that rather than this uh, actual deer sign with, with regards to scrapes and ropes. Okay. So you mentioned the head of a ditch. Can you, can you just better explain what you mean by that in case people yeah. aren't familiar with where you're at? What does that mean? And then when you say that deer have to move around that, just explain what you mean by that. Yeah, so ditches obviously can can be in like in between a couple of ridges in the timber. There's a ditch in between, and depending on the severity of it, how steep it is, how how much brush and everything in it, the deer are you know somewhat lazy sometimes, and they're gonna take the easiest path, and typically there's not very many heads of ditches like where that ditch ends that there's not going to be a good deer trail. And and it doesn't have to be in real like um, steep terrain either. I have a lot of flat farms that I hunt where there's just one small ditch and they still just don't cross it. It's way easier just to walk around it than to cross it, even though we know deer can 
hop across it like it's nothing, uh, they still more often than not will walk around the head of that. So I'll find spots like that to set up where if, if there's trees along that ditch, I'll set up, you know, 30 yards, 25 yards off of the head of that ditch, blow my wind back down the ditch. And, uh, I've, I've killed some good deer that way. Just bucks cruising along the heads of those and, and following does along the heads of those. It's a good terrain feature, um, that forces deer movement and you know exactly how the deer are going to use it. Yeah. Can you, can you describe any other terrain funnels or features like that, that are worth keying on during the rut? Um, a lot of times we hear these, oh, I don't know, like kind of this jargon. Like people will say, oh, there's a saddle or, oh, there's a, right. you know, a, a funnel or whatever it is. They say these things and then someone hearing it might not know what that actually looks like in the woods though. So it's always helpful, I find, to yeah. try to hear specific examples from people. Do you have any that stand out that you could describe? Yeah. Um, another one that I really like is like the inside corner of a field. So let's say it's a, an ag field or even food plot or something that's got timber on at least a couple sides of it. Let's say two sides, and then it, it opens up into a big cornfield or bean field. That corner um, that connects the the two pieces of timber is a lot of times a really good spot because you a lot of guys, I think, have the tendency to set up on the edge of the field so they can see out in the field and shoot out in the field which isn't necessarily a bad strategy but i've seen a lot of times where mature bucks especially they don't need to even if they can't see on the field they don't need to come out in the field to know what's out there you know they can walk that downwind inside corner and know exactly what's been out there based on scent and so we see that a lot where sometimes we'll just set up 40 yards off of that inside corner, um, 40 yards off the field edge back in the woods. And it's a great travel route, like I said, especially for mature deer. Um, my buddy that I bought my property with, um, he killed one of our target deer, uh, two nights ago on an inside corner. He was doing just that. Um, just didn't come out. He was on a food plot. He didn't come out on the food plot. He was just walking that, downwind side of it just just cruising and uh he was able to kill him as a, a great buck as one of the two targets we had on that farm and we nice. see that a lot so inside corners are are really good spots too for mature deer that's a great point speaking of a situation like that one of the another one of these general conundrums that we find a lot is trying to keep deer from winding you so setting up in a way that you're not going to get winded, but at the same time thinking about how a buck wants to use the wind. So in that scenario, mm-hmm. I can envision that could be challenging if the buck wants to be, you know, downwind of the food source, but you want right. to be back in that cover where he's used to take advantage of that. So in that situation, your wind is blowing back into the timber probably in some kind of way. How do you go yep. about trying to balance those two things? In that specific situation, Typically, and this isn't what happened two nights ago, I can say he was actually, my buddy was actually closer to the food plot. And I think the wind just happened to be blowing the deer so close that the wind was blowing over the top of them. But uh, in general, we just like to be on the inside corner, just be back off of the trail or the route we think the mature buck is going to be walking. So if, let's say that wind is blowing 
in the direction right to the inside corner from the field out in or you know right into that inside corner the the buck is going to be downwind of it and we're going to be downwind of his travel route yeah so we just you know sometimes we give up being able to see what's coming out in the field and that's a gamble of course but we have seen more often than not that's that's what the mature bucks do sometimes they'll just walk that inside corner first to scent check before coming out in the field uh, sometimes I'll just keep going, and if there wasn't anything they they particularly liked about that, whatever they smelled, they'll just keep going. But mm-hmm. uh, they almost always walk those inside corners, you know, especially if it's just not they're not going out to feed or something. They're just they're scent checking for does. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in in general, with regards to your question, uh, I do a lot of times try to keep the wind a little bit in favor of the buck. Um, you know, it, a lot of times it, it takes cutting it really close. Uh, I can provide an example from, oh man, I think it was 2014 or 15. I was hunting a deer. Well, the deer, the same deer that was in that fight I filmed, the deer I called George Brett. I noticed from cameras and sightings that he would always follow the wind. So, on the north wind, he would go north. On the south wind, he would go south. Um, it, you know, he'd walk with the with the wind in his face. And no matter what, even as we're getting later in November, and most of the deer were just always moving in one direction towards the primary food source, he would go somewhere else if, if the wind wasn't right. And so I knew this, and I knew with the north wind that he would be walking north, um, and my only, and I had to set up north of him. So he'd be directly downwind of me as he was walking. I essentially just moved over about 50 yards, um, so that my north wind wasn't blowing directly towards where I assumed he was being, where I assumed he was bedded. Uh, so he still had that north wind advantage. I just moved over 50 yards and, um, he came out, it, it worked out perfect. I just, he just didn't quite get in the bow range. Like I said, that's an example of really cutting it close. Um, you just have to move over, still give the deer that that wind advantage that he wants, and how you expect him to move. Um, but and, and the wind's not necessarily great for you, but it's kind of what you got to do to get close to them and, and understand mm-hmm. how they like to move. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, man. It is a tricky maneuver, though, and I can't tell you how many times I've tried that and cursed yeah. the weatherman when the weatherman's oh. forecast was oh. not quite right. And There's you're nothing like, worse. You're seeing it spinning yeah. around. You're like, oh, God, no, please don't don't blow any more over yeah. there. But yeah. but, yeah, you're right. It does seem like many times those bucks want that advantage, at least that perceived advantage, as much as possible. So Yeah, and you have to, th- you have to think like that all the time, and, and you'll find little ways that, that the wind advantage is good for the deer, but it's also good for you. You'll, you'll find ways you can set up, you know, right on, maybe it's a train feature like the head of a ditch um, or something like that where the wind's still in his favor, but he still has to go through this route or through this spot. Um, those are probably the best situations where, you know, the wind advantage is still good for him. He's still going to move, but he still can't detect you. Yeah. This is this is totally unrelated to what you're just talking about. So this is kind of off the wall, but just popped in my head as I was thinking through some of the scenarios you've been laying out here. Um, and you yeah. talked about 
hunting this one property. I think it's the farm you guys recently bought that's on that river. And yep. a river, I think, is a perfect example of a of a windbreak of sorts where you can blow your wind over the river and you know get away with some things. And maybe there's a bend in the river that a buck maybe thinks he's got in his favor, and then the bend of the river blows your wind over the water, and then he has to curl around and you get a shot. Um, I could see that being a pretty good one. But where that weird thought process took me to as I was thinking through a river was thinking about – I don't remember if it was last year or where it was, but I, I seem to remember a situation you were in where your property flooded. Is that right? Am I remember this right? Did you have a flooded property yeah. at some point? Yep. Okay. Yep. Multiple last year, actually. Okay. So there's been a ton of rain in a lot of places this year. A lot. I've heard a lot of people talking about being in situations kind of like that, flooded out areas. Um, at the beginning of October here, one of the farms I hunt, I had food plots completely underwater. I had trails completely underwater where I usually can access parts of the farm that I couldn't. So I had that a little bit this year. Um, we just had a ton of rain this past week. So I'm, I'm just thinking there might be people experiencing something like that. Anything you yeah. learned about dealing with a flooded property or maybe how that would change the way someone should approach their upcoming rut hunts, anything like that? Oh, man. Um, that's tough because I think every every property is going to be a little bit different. You know, my property it was completely, the whole farm was underwater. Um, so the deer had to move off to higher ground to other properties. They, there was, there was nothing that wasn't flooded on our property. Um, and we, and we had some deer that were there in the beginning of the season and the flood happened and they never showed back up. Um, so I don't know if they just moved off and found the spot they liked better and just never came back or what. Um, I'm assuming most, situations aren't exactly like that but um yeah i don't don't know i mean that's a tough one just because i I think it's it's hard to generalize something like that um yeah i've never found myself in a situation like that yeah the the hardest part for us was i think this may be a reason why a lot of deer didn't move back is all the vegetation was either washed away or completely matted down. And so all their bedding, or it used to be nice tall grass for them to have a safe bedding spot was gone and everything was just matted down and open. So there's still deer that cruised around there, but as far as actually bedding locations, we've lost a lot of that just due to the flood and the water sat there for so long and it killed a lot of vegetation and stuff like that. So we, you know, it, it affected our farm tremendously it wasn't like the water receded and all the deer moved back in it it had a pretty good effect on it throughout the rest of the season that's brutal i i I imagined like when i think about the scenario the only silver lining that i can come up with and this will be different from farm to farm but i kind of wondered that there's there might be some period of time when the water started to recede where you get water created funnels where there's these strips of high ground yeah. and now deer are forced to move through this narrow area and maybe that's something you could take advantage of but that's the only potential silver lining i could find yeah no doubt i mean that's all i'm saying i think every every property is going to be a little bit different if, if you have a property that has higher ground and that's kind of a no-brainer um there's going to be a higher concentration of deer there or at least deer using that area so that's uh we just didn't have that luxury. Everything everything was flat and everything was underwater all at once. So that's a tough that's a tough situation. So I think last year yeah. too, as I'm trying to remember back on like chasing November episodes, you couldn't hunt yeah. that farm then. You you had like a new project farm I think you were talking about, and yeah. 
eventually you ended up rattling in a buck somewhere, right? Is that how you ended up killing a buck? Yeah. So I, for work, I, uh, my family and I had to move last year a couple hours away. So my, the only farm that I had to hunt back home, uh, cause I lost permission on the other farms that I managed just cause I wasn't going to be around to help, um, was the flooded farm. So I was forced to hunt brand new properties where we moved to. So I had two or three properties that were completely new to me and they weren't anything special. They were just, uh, um, just kind of ag farms with small strips of timber or little fingers of timber stuff like that. The project farm was a cattle farm. Um, but the, the farm that I actually killed on was essentially just a big bean field, had some good cover in the neighborhood, some good timber. Um, but it just, it just came down to, I I mean, I I wish I could tell you there's a big strategy behind that one, but it came to being in the right spot at the right time and not giving up on that property. I didn't have any shooters on camera on that farm. I just knew by looking at the neighborhood, driving around and looking at the aerial map, that there's going to be good deer moving through there in November and just happened to be there in the right spot that time when, when a good buck came out, he came out, um, probably 200 yards away, 250 yards away. Uh, when I first saw him, I was able to rattle at him and that was the situation where I had a windbreak. I don't like a lot of calling unless I have a good wind advantage or I have a visual on the deer. Um, in that case, he was directly upwind of me, 200 yards, and he, I don't know if he knew he couldn't get downwind or if he just didn't care at that point. Um, it was November 11th, but fortunately, he just walked a line with the wind uh, at his back, walked 200 yards in, so that one that one worked out. And that property actually flooded, but it the water receded, and they started using that field a lot um, after that. And so the reason you were saying that – the reason you mentioned that windbreak is is probably because I'm guessing you've seen the same thing I've seen, which is oftentimes a buck's going to want to approach a sound like a grunt or a rattle from the downwind side, right? Yeah, almost always unless, like I said, they're just it's very rut-crazed and kind of just in the right mood or um, they know they can't get downwind and they're, they still believe that there's a fight going on or there's another buck over there. Um, I, I usually like to call the deer when I can see them and, and go based off of how they react. Um, or I will blind call if I have a really good wind advantage, like a creek or a river behind me. Okay. So walk me through then what that calling or rattling sequence would be. Let's say you spot a big buck somewhere. Uh, do you always grunt first? Do you always rattle first? Do you does something help you determine what you're going to use? Kind of walk me through your whole thought process when it comes to choosing what you're going to do and then what you actually do in that scenario. Yep. Um, typically the conditions dictate that and, and usually that's based on wind uh, speed. So if it's really windy and I don't think he'll hear a grunt or a snort wheeze, I will rattle at, at a deer. Um, Typically, though, if, if I know a deer can hear me, I will start out with just a grunt. I think that's the least uh, intrusive sound or least challenging sound to a buck. So I wanted to see how he'll react to that. Um, you don't typically, or I haven't typically seen deer really negatively react to a grunt call. It's just something that I think they hear more often than 
Ish not wheeze or two bucks fighting. Uh, so I'll start with that if I know a buck can hear the grunt call. And then if he doesn't respond to that, I will snort wheeze. I love the snort wheeze call, especially on mature deer. I don't have, um, I should say, I don't have too many that just completely ignore it uh, or get spooked by it. They usually will somehow react to it. Um, whether they come all the way in or not, that's a different question, but, uh, usually they, that call means something to them. So I use snort wheeze a lot. Um, rattling is kind of the third option. If he, if the deer doesn't respond to either one of those, I will rattle or I will start off rattling if it's really windy, like I said. How, like, what's that rattle sequence like? Is it? long do you just do 15 20 seconds and stop what's your rattling sequences typically look like if i can see the deer and see his reaction i'll just i'll rattle i'll make sure that i'm hidden whether it's i'm rattling on the back side of the tree or something like that i will just watch his reaction i will keep rattling until he makes a move whether that's going away from me or coming towards me um, i need him to co- to be convinced that it is a really good fight like an actual brawl that he needs to come in and check out Uh, once he starts coming i'll put him away and get ready Uh, or if he obviously goes away i'll put him away too uh, just because obviously he didn't like it but sometimes you'll see a deer go away and he'll come back around and check it out later so you're not always completely out of the game if i'm blind calling um it's probably I would say 30 seconds of of pretty hard hitting. Um, I have seen a couple of really good fights and it's hard to rattle as loud as two mature bucks are fighting. So I like to hit them almost as hard as I can for a good 20 to 30 seconds. Obviously just making sure your eyes are peeled and your head's on a swivel because you don't want to be hitting those things when a deer is 30 yards away and can clearly see, (laughs) you know, what's going on. So you just have to constantly be looking around. But, um, I've, that's one thing I tell guys is not to be afraid to hit them really hard. Most, most often I think guys aren't rattling loud enough. Yeah. All right. So you gotta be honest with me on this one. Have yep. you smashed a finger yet doing a hardcore rattling yeah. sequence? <laughs> <laughs> I've drawn blood before. I can tell you that much. <laughs> You're really getting after it. That's good. <laughs> yeah. And I like to use heavy antlers. Um, this, it creates more of that deep mass sound to them. Um, that's, I think that makes a big difference too. Yeah. What about, uh, speaking of aggressive tactics, what about decoying? Is that something you ever uh, pull out and try at this time of year? I do. Not very often. I probably decoy once or twice a year. And for me, it's all about the property and the specific location on that property. If it's a property that has a lot of does, I usually don't think about decoying because I've had just too many experiences where if the does are the first deer to come out, it's usually not a good thing. Those just don't react very good to decoys, in my experience, especially at least puck decoys. I've, I, don't, I don't know that I've ever used a doe decoy. Um, but if it's an area where there's not a huge doe population um, and it's an area where the deer can see the decoy a long ways, you know, you don't want the decoy to surprise them. 
you know, they come around the corner and there's a buck decoy standing right there. Um, you want them to be able to see it from across the field. And the other thing, the other key is just positioning the decoy so that it's, it's kind of like calling the, the buck's going to circle downwind of it. Uh, you want to make sure that you can shoot the deer before it fully gets downwind. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it seems right in line with a lot of things I've, I've seen the little bit I've dabbled with it is, uh, Picking the right time to do it in the right place is sometimes the biggest deal of all. Um, Have you had good success with it? Only once. Uh, I, I decoyed in a buck once in Ohio, and it was really cool. It was really cool that it yeah. worked that way. Um, but I, I never use it in Michigan because I just think that these deer are just on edge, and you put something like that yeah. out, and it'd be it'd be donezo. But I've used it in Iowa and Ohio yeah. and had a yeah. little bit of success. So. It's cool yeah. though. It is pretty cool when they come in and not, they're ready to fight all bristled up. I've I've had some cool hunts over decoys. I just don't use them. I don't think I've ever actually killed a buck over a decoy, but I've had some some good solid bucks come into them. Yeah, it was definitely one of the more memorable kills I've had. Just seeing it play out just the way you imagine after watching it on TV, you know, and it actually works out that way. Yeah. That was that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. So what about let's let's talk a little bit more generically about hunting the rut one of the things you hear a lot about is just putting in the time you hear this yeah. often like almost the most important thing many times people will say about hunting during the rut is just being out there sticking it out um do you hunt all day do you do midday sits during the rut what's your thought on that i do um a lot of times this time of year unfortunately i i have to at least catch up on a little bit of work midday so most often get down for an hour or two, grab a bite to eat, uh, catch up on some work, and then get back in the stand. Um, if I have situations where I know I can spare the whole day, I, lo- I do love sitting all day. I've had some great hunts where uh, a lot of the action happens during those hours where most guys are, like I said, at lunch. Um, there's no doubt about you, you just have to put your time in. You're not going to – sometimes you do more damage by getting down – leaving and then coming back in the same stand, you're way better off just sitting there and and sticking it out, bringing food with you, whatever it takes. Um, so you don't have to get down and and come back in a couple hours later, you know, when you just talking about my rut plans in general, I want to spend as much time in a tree as I possibly can. Um, the old saying is true. You can't, can't kill them if you're not out there. So, um, just just put the time in for sure and that's what it's all about it is but it's it's also at least from my experience it's also easier said than done i don't know if you've experienced this but when you're out there and you're hunting as much as you possibly can you know you've got you've got four weeks in november for a lot of people the first two weeks the first three weeks maybe are game time you you cash in on your vacation days you call in sick you you know you've done all your chores so your wife's going to be okay if you're out there for day after day and you're you're getting out there Mm -hmm. an hour and a half or two hours before daylight and you're sitting for 12 hours or 13 hours or whatever it is and you do it day after day after day that is an absolute grind i mean at least for me it wears me down to a pulp um how do you yeah. handle that part of it? How do you handle the the mental and the physical fatigue of it all? Yeah, it is an absolute grind. There's no way around that. I don't know anybody that it's not like that for. Um, and sometimes it's one of those things where 
just take one day off and you're completely refreshed and you're ready to go again. And, and you probably look at look back and be like, man, why did I even take that day off? But, um, it'd be amazed as how even one hunt off is, is a big refresher. So I, I won't be afraid to, to do that every once in a while, but I, I, I like to tell myself that this is, this is one month. This is the month, you know, November, this is the month I wait for all year round. You know, it's going to be gone before I know it. Um, while it seems like a grind while you're living it day to day, it's going to go really fast and you're going to wish you had some of those times you didn't hunt back, uh, once November's gone. So that's what I like to tell myself. It, it is a mental thing for sure. Um, and it's a grind, but just the other thing is just try to enjoy the experience as much as possible and keep things in perspective. Um, I know a lot of guys that probably put too much pressure on themselves. Like I, I got to kill, like, you know, I got to, got to, they just they put too much pressure on themselves to, to kill a deer or to be out there and, and they lose a little bit of the enjoyment of it. So just kind of looking at the big picture, stepping back a little bit and, and realize what, what truly you're getting to do, I think is another important mental aspect of, of getting through it. So true. And every year I need to, re-remind myself of that because I'm definitely the guy that puts that pressure on and inevitably find myself sitting in the tree like god dang it why isn't this happening what's going on why is is this is I'm not going to kill anything this year and and I always have to have like that uh I don't know mental self-therapy session (laughs) talk myself through it and remind myself exactly what you said this is supposed to be fun enjoy it yeah put you take advantage of November take advantage of this but also don't sit out there, you know, bitching and moaning to yourself because it's not going the way you want it to. Um, yeah. Try to enjoy it for what it is. And then I do find, and, and probably you've seen this too, that as soon as you get down on yourself at all, as soon as you start to lose hope, that's when the big buck shows up and you weren't paying mm-hmm. attention. Or that's when he cruises yeah. through and you were too busy on your phone or whatever it is. It, it also, yeah. You almost set yourself up for failure as soon as you mentally check out. Yeah, it's like like a lot of things. It's mental. The mental game is a huge part of it. Um, and you, it, as long as you understand that, you can, you can get yourself through it. But it's all just about just keeping keeping your attitude positive and and just really realizing what you're doing and not take it for granted and just enjoy it. Yeah, that's that's why we do this ultimately is because it's such a good time. So it's a, it'd be a shame not to enjoy it while you're out there. Yeah, that's right. And like I said, once once it's gone, it's you you just want it back. Um, you know, once once the season's over, it, that depression sets in. You got to wait another ten months <laughs> for it to to happen. And it's uh, if you keep that in perspective, you'll you'll probably hunt as often as you can while you can. Yeah, very true. So, with all that being the case, I need to slip out and go try to kill a big buck right now. Actually, so do you have any final parting words of advice or? Final words of wisdom for folks as they head out for their rut hunts? Uh, be safe. Like I said earlier, um, there's just, there's no deer that's, that's worth, you know, some of the bad things that can happen and uh, building off the point we just talked about, enjoy it and keep things in perspective, have fun. Um, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of, I think you probably see it just as much as anyone. There's, there's a lot of negativity and, and division. It seems like in, in our hunting world these days and just trying to keep positive and, and really realize what the sport is about and, and, um, 
So just have fun and, and be safe. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great reminders. If people would like to see what you guys are up to and all the different shows that you're producing and, and your content, where can folks find that? Um, I'm not a huge social media guy, but I'd say social media is probably the best way. We have a, a 41 North uh, media Instagram account. And, uh, you know, obviously we you can follow us individually on Facebook and Instagram. And then uh, some of the shows that we're producing, a lot of the Realtree shows are on Realtree 365. So a lot of the shows on there we're producing. And of course, Middle Swytel, you can follow on YouTube, uh, the Middle Swytel website, Realtree 365. Um, a lot of the, the smart TV apps uh, is where you can find Realtree 365. So we're kind of everywhere. Um, but those would be the main spots. Perfect. Well, uh, I definitely uh, would recommend anyone listening to check those out. Yesterday morning, uh, my son woke up, and first thing he did is he, he's he's almost two years old. Uh, first thing he did is he ran over to our TV shelf, and he grabbed his buck grunt call off of the little hanger. He started <laughs> grunting on it, and then he starts saying, buh, buh, which is how he says buck. And that That's means awesome. he wanted to watch some bucks. So we turned on the TV, and Realtree 365 happened to be the first app I saw. So I popped that up. And I put on the recent episode you guys had with Bill Winky killing that surprise buck. And uh, Everett, my son Everett, loved it. He was very impressed with Bill's Bill's recent deer. So it's uh, it's definitely (laughs) worth watching. That's pretty cool. I love hearing that stuff. Yeah, it's it's a good time. So, uh, Jared, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really enjoyed our chat. Awesome. I I appreciate the opportunity, Mark, and and thanks for all you do for us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Good luck hunting. Uh, You too. Thanks. All right. And that's a wrap, my friends. I'm going to tell you this once, and that's it. Turn off the podcast and get out hunting. This is the one time I'm going to tell you not to listen to more podcasts because November's here. This is it. We dreamed of it all year. Just like Jared was saying, just like Dan and I were talking about at the beginning, this is our Super Bowl. Take advantage of it. Hunt hard. Put in the work. Do the things you know you need to do. If you've been listening to this podcast, You have all the tools. You know the things to do. You know the things on the to-do list. It's just a matter of executing on it. And I know you can do it. And you're going to have an awesome season. And you're going to have a good time. I believe in you. I hope you have a great, great set of hunts coming up. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full, great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood Pellet Grill.